Welcome to Focused on Forward. The purpose of this podcast is to focus on recovery from life situations, be it a disease, chronic or acute, perhaps the loss of someone so dear to you in death, or a change of life patterns that has affected you so profoundly that you have no choice but to find your new normal and become focused on moving forward. Each episode is designed to show the positivity that people bring to each and every one of their stories, the successes they've had, ways that they have become so definitively focused on moving forward. We look forward to sharing their stories, and we hope that they inspire you just as much as they have inspired us. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our Friday night edition of Focused on Forward, our live show. I've got a really interesting guest tonight, and I'm so excited to be able to bring him to you. I've read articles about uh, Jeffrey Deskovic and and some of the things that have happened in his life and how this has all played out. But even with having read the articles, I don't think that it appropriately helps us to understand what he's gone through, where he's been, how he's gotten to where he's at today. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to bringing him out here in just a moment. But before we do that, of course, we have to, as same thing as we do every Friday night, we have to quickly thank our sponsor, Vital Signs and Graphics. Please pay attention to the following short video. Since 1982, Vital Signs and Graphics has been helping professionals with all their image, logo, and design needs. Perhaps you're looking for signs and banners, truck and trailer lettering, business cards, brochures, or other image and marketing aids, Vital Signs and Graphics in-house design studio has you covered. From logos to apparel, start to finish, Vital Signs and Graphics has everything you need to look and feel professional. Call Rick at 231-652-3300. He'll get you noticed. All right, guys. So, yeah, if you need logos and designs and sign-made business cards, apparel, things along those lines, please give Rick a call, 231-652-3300. Tell him that Focused on Forward sent you, and he'll take real good care of you. Now, before I bring out my guest, there's one quick thing that I want to highlight. Now, many of you know that the reason I started this show was because after my daughter was hospitalized for 97 days, we came home with her medical conditions and everything else. And uh, my wife and I had some emotional and mental health things that needed to be addressed and we needed somebody to talk to. And we both thought it would be nice to have heard stories from somebody else that had kind of lived through the same thing and gone through the same thing. So in doing that, but in going through that and, and, and all of that, one of the things that happened for us was because of the, the fact that we were in the hospital with my daughter the entire time. My wife was off of work. I was off of work. Uh, we were there at the hospital with her. She was 12 years old and we wanted to make sure that she was safe. So the thing is, is that we were strapped for cash absolutely strapped for cash. And we were looking uh, bankruptcy probably in the face. It had this, had somebody and one of our friends not jumped in and helped with a GoFundMe. So tonight, and it started at two o'clock this afternoon, from two o'clock this afternoon till two o'clock in the morning, uh, there's a fundathon going on right now for Robbie Milby and his wife. Now, why that's important is because they're good friends. Uh, they're, well, 
he's the brother-in-law of a good friend of mine. Let's put it that way. Uh, Jason Taylor from the Three Geeks podcast. So this is what's happening right there. So Jason Taylor's brother-in-law was was injured or fell sick rather uh, while on on vacation in the North Carolina area, I believe, where it was where it was at. Well, because of the the, the illness and everything, they have been able to transfer him back to the state of Ohio now. But he's got another four to five weeks in the hospital. This man is a husband, a father of a couple small children. And he needs the help desperately. So once I'm done here tonight, I'm focused on forward. I'm going straight from this show. I'm going to be part of this charity fundathon, and I am going to help uh, raise money for the Milby family, who is very much in need and very much needs uh, a little bit of a helping hand. And you know what? There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Uh, that was one of those things in life where we needed a helping hand. We had somebody there to help us. Had it not been for that GoFundMe, we would have been destitute. We would have been in so much trouble. So what I'm asking is if you can, even if it's just a dollar, even if it's $5, $10, that all adds up. Please go to the link that I put into the chat. Go to the fundraiser for the Milby family. And please make a donation. Don't think that because it's $1 or $5 or whatever it may be, that it's not enough and that you're not going to be able to, to make an impact. Your $1 adds up so fast. Right now, they're at 5400 of 10000 They need We need to get them up to 10000 We need to be able to help this family, this father of three, this mother of three, know that there's still good people in this world. There's still good things happening in this world and that we can help them out. So please go there. Please make a donation as much as you can. Okay. All right, guys. Thank you so much. Uh, and uh, my my guest has patiently been waiting for me in the, in the, uh, the, the virtual green room. So we're going to bring out uh, our guest now, Jeffrey Deskovich. Jeff, thank you for joining me. Thanks, Tim, for having me. Really excited for tonight. in the bit of the preview there, I, I said that, you know, <laughs> I've read articles about, about your story. Uh, there was one in the New York Post. There was, you know, a couple a couple of different other magazines and, and such. But I don't think that a magazine article can really relay the impact of what you've been through, what happened and how it happened. So what I'd like uh, at this point, Jeff, if you would, please kind of walk us through your story. What happened? How did it happen? And how did we get to where we're at today with you actually now being a lawyer? Sure. So I'll just give like a short like overview. And then uh, I think we'll maybe we'll, we'll flesh the story out as you ask questions. Uh, Perfect. So, yeah. So the overview or primer, if you will, is that I spent 16 years in prison from age 17 to 32 for a murder and rape, which I did not commit. Uh, I lost the trial despite a pretrial negative DNA test result. The wrongful conviction was caused by a coerced false confession, prosecutorial misconduct, fraud by the medical examiner, terrible public defender. And uh, yeah, I lost seven appeals. I got turned down for parole. Ultimately, I was exonerated through further DNA testing via the DNA data bank, which not only established my innocence, but also identified the actual perpetrator whose DNA was only in the data bank because left free while I was doing time for his crime. He killed a second victim uh, just three and a half years later, a school teacher or, and mother of two. 
So my all charges against me were dismissed on actual innocence grounds. Uh, I became an advocate. I started a nonprofit organization, the Jeffrey Deskovic Foundation for Justice, which was designed to free people in the same position I was in. We've gotten 11 people home. We've helped pass uh, three laws aimed at preventing wrongful conviction. And as an advisory board member of the National Coalition Group, it could happen to you. We passed another five laws. And lastly, not being content to sit in the front row of the courtroom, I went to law school and I became an attorney for the purpose of uh, chasing the dream of exonerating others as an attorney. So that's the overview. It will unfold the story and uh, hopefully some of my adv uh, advocacy work as well uh, throughout the interview. Yeah, excellent. And definitely, we definitely want to hit on that. Um, and we you know that's the whole what are we what are we doing now section. So I want to make sure that we highlight that because you're doing some pretty amazing stuff. But let's go back to the actual the time of the conviction. So how did you get to the point where it got confused that you were the person that was in in the limelight for what this you know being convicted for this crime? Well, I got on the police radar originally uh, as a suspect for three reasons. Firstly, the police interviewed a lot of students from the high school and because I was quiet into myself and didn't participate in a lot of organized sports. Uh, I didn't fit in. And so when the police interviewed a lot of students from the high school, some of them told the police that they might want to talk to me. I guess the underlying thinking is that quiet people who don't fit in commit heinous crimes. Okay. The second thing is I was a teenager and I, I was a sensitive teenager and I had an emotional reaction to uh, the victim uh, who was a classmate of mine and two of my classes a freshman, one as a sophomore. I knew her name. She knew mine. We were not even on a high buy basis. And so my having an emotional reaction to her murder was suspicious to the police. Now, I want to also add for context that there hadn't really been a murder in Peekskill for maybe 20 years. And this really shook everybody up to the point that there was free mental health counseling set up throughout the city of Peekskill to anyone who wanted it. That, that was a uh, there was a further reinforcing factor in that the Peekskill police got a psychological profile from the NYPD, which purported to uh, give, have the psychological characteristics of the actual perpetrator. And I had the misfortune of matching those characteristics. Okay. So you might say it was an inter so you might say uh, it was a reinforcing factor. So that's really how I got on their radar. That's not how they arrested me. That's how I got on their radar in okay. terms of how they arrested me. So I had about six weeks worth of interactions with the police in which the, the uh, interactions took on the following dynamic, that half the time they would talk to me as if I was a suspect, and the other half the time they would pretend like they needed my help to solve the crime. They would say things like, the kids won't talk freely around us, but they will around you. Let us know if you hear anything. Stop in from time to time. They would ask me opinion questions and congratulate me that my opinion was correct. Prior to being a teenager, the career I wanted to have when I grew up was to be a cop. So that, along with my age, 16, was how they pulled the wool over my eyes. Ah, Eventually, okay. yeah. The other thing I want to mention is I came from a single-parent household. My father was never involved in my life in any aspect, and that intersected with the good cop, bad cop um, technique in which one officer was pretending to be a friend. I began to look up to him as a father figure. Understood, yeah, okay. So eventually they got me to agree to take a polygraph test by telling me that there was some new information that they want that had just come in from the uh, police file and they wanted to share that with me. I and mean, that would allow me to be even more helpful to them 
But first, I would have to take and pass a polygraph test. So the next day, rather than report to the school, I instead, and so instead, I, instead of um, going to school, I went to the uh, police station for this test. And as a result of that, my mother and grandmother with whom I lived had no idea that anything was wrong. So they did not call around looking for me. They drove me to the town of Brewster, which was in Putnam County, whereas I was a native of Pigskill in Westchester County. And that meant that I was no longer able to leave on my own. I was instead totally dependent upon the police. Uh, yeah. And now, uh, now there were three officers who came there with me from Peekskill, but then there was also the Putnam County Sheriff's investigator who was dressed like a civilian. He never identified himself as a police officer. And he gave me, he gave me a four. There was no attorney present. I, I didn't have anything to eat. He gave me a brochure, which explained how the polygraph worked. And, but it had a lot of big words in it, which I didn't understand. But then, but then he, uh, I figured I was there to help the police. So what did it matter? Let's just right. get on with it. Let's just, you know, what is it? So from there, he put me in a small room and gave me countless cups of coffee, and which was intended to get me nervous. And then he prolonged into his third degree tactics. So he raised his voice at me, he invaded my personal space. He kept asking me the same questions over and over again. And as each hour pro uh, progressed, so did each hour, so too did each hour. As each hour passed by, my fear increased in proportion to the time. Sure. Towards the end, he uh, he uh, said to me, what do you mean you didn't do it? You just told me through the test results that you did. We just want you to verbally confirm it. And that really shot my fear through the roof. And at that point, the officer who had been pretending to be my friend, he came in the room and told me that the other officers were going to harm me, but that he'd been holding them off and couldn't do so any longer, that I had to help myself. Then he added, look, just tell them what they want to hear. They'll stop what they're doing that you can go home afterwards, you're not gonna be arrested. So being young, naive, frightened, 16 years old, not thinking about the long-term, just being concerned with my own safety in the moment. Sure. I took it out, which he offered and made up a story based on the information that had been given to me that day and in the six weeks run up to it. By the time everything was all said and done, I had collapsed into, on the floor into a fetal position, crying uncontrollably, and obviously I was arrested. I was charged with a murder and rape. Wow. So through all of that, so basically they badgered you into a false confession. Correct. So that yeah. was how they arrested me. It's a different thing that happened after that as to how they were able to get the wrongful conviction. Okay. Well, let's go into that. Lead us sure. up to that point. I, I, so they, I, I'm mm -hmm. I, just, just, just for clarification, I'm absolutely enamored by this story. So I will, I will take any details you can give me. <laughs> All right. Wonderful. Okay. I wasn't sure about that. Okay, great. All right. So prior to the trial, the DNA test result came in from the FBI lab, which showed that semen found in the victim didn't match me. But rather than acknowledge they made a mistake, they continued to prosecute full speed ahead. In order to explain away the DNA test, the prosecutor got the medical examiner to commit fraud. He claimed that he remembered that he forgot to document medical evidence that he says showed the victim had been promiscuous which is what opened the door for the prosecutor to argue that it didn't matter that the DNA didn't match me, that she might have slept with yet another person prior to my murdering and raping her. Taking it a step further, he mentioned another youth by name that he claimed had had this encounter with the victim. But he never tried to prove that. He never had a DNA test result uh, performed. He never even called him as a witness. He just made the unsupported argument to the jury. At the same time, the victim's family 
was not coming to court. They had no idea of what was being said about her in the courtroom, that they were trashing her reputation in the furtherance oh of convicted me. And my attorney, who was a public defender, essentially did not defend me. He never, he never explained to the jury the significance of the DNA not matching me. He never used that to challenge the confession. He rarely met with me when he did meet with me and I tried to explain to him that I was innocent and what happened in the interrogation room. He was always shutting me up. One time he told me he didn't care if I was guilty or innocent. Mm. He literally asked no questions of this medical examiner whose fraud was looming so large in this case. Uh, he should have never represented me because of a conflict of interest in that this other youth that the prosecutor was falsely saying had slept with the victim was represented by another member of uh, legal aid and specifically the lawyer who was supposed to be supervising him on my case. So that conflict prevented the defense from asking uh, him for a DNA sample. It prevented the defense from calling him as a witness. Lastly, with respect to the interrogation, it was not videotaped. It was not audio taped. There was no signed confession. It was just the cop's word for it. And when they came to court, they left the threat and false promise out of their story. I wanted to testify. My lawyer wouldn't allow me to testify. When you defend a case where there's a false confession, you have to answer that confession. You have to explain that confession. You have to disprove it and bring it all together in your closing argument. But he didn't do any of that. In fact, sometimes he argued to the jury the confession never happened. Other times he argued that it happened but was coerced. At still other times he argued it happened but it was false. And if all that wasn't enough, there were three major irregularities, all of which led to the wrongful conviction. Uh, one of them was the, the, in general, the polygraph evidence is not allowed in the courtroom because it's not reliable unless both sides agree to uh, let it in. Correct. The defense, the defense never agreed, but the judge created this backdoor rule where he repeatedly allowed the polygraphist to tell the jury I failed the polygraph on the theory that the confession happened within the context of me taking the polygraph. Wow. While, while at the same time, he forbade my lawyer from asking this polygraph is any questions about the method that he used in order to arrive at this opinion. Another thing was that the victim's clothes, including the bra, was admitted into evidence. The jury asked to see the bra, and that was important because one of the statements that, that I made up, the police, uh, um, one of the statements the police coerced me in, into making up was I said that I ripped her bra off. And some bras, the way that they're made, you physically can't rip them off of a body. So the okay. jury asked to see the bra, and that's when the court said that the clothes were left in the courtroom over the weekend and that it appeared that the janitors thought that it was garbage. So the victim's clothes, including the bra, were thrown out. So he Immediately claimed. disappeared, yes. Yes. Lastly, the jury sent out a note on their third day of deliberations asking the judge if we don't come up with the, with a verdict, then are we going to be sequestered over the Christmas holiday? Now, at that point, it was 11 to 1 for a conviction. There was a holdout juror. He thought that I was innocent, but they were pressuring him. And when that note was sent out, uh, then the pressure increased. And nobody wanted to be there over the Christmas holiday. Neither did he. And so he switched his vote. And the end result of all of that, which I just told you, was that I was wrongfully convicted at age 17 for a murder and rape, which I didn't commit. I was given a 15 to life sentence, despite the trial judge telling me on the record, uh, maybe you are innocent. And I was sent to a men's maximum security prison. 
Wow. So 17 years old, you're sent to a maximum security prison. That's an awfully yeah. tough place for a young man to go. What was your mental and emotional state heading into this maximum security prison? I was terrified. I mean, I remember how menacing the barbed wire looked, how large the prison wall loomed. I was a 17-year-old. I'm sent to a men's maximum security prison. These are fully formed adults, many of whom are guilty of committing very serious violent crimes. I'm there for the worst possible charge. I have a rape mm -hmm. with, along with the murder. There's a vigilante mentality where people are convicted of sex offenses. Sure. You know, so, and, and the idea that I was going to a place where the correction officers were in charge was a terrifying thought in, in and of itself. So that was my thoughts heading heading into it. And okay, so were you sent into directly into general population, or did you were did there was there a transition period? How did this work? I was sent. Well, they gave me the choice: did I want to go into general population, or did I want to go into what they called protective custody? So I asked them, "Well, what's protective custody?" And they said, "Well, if you feel that your life is in danger." The only way we can really protect you is we keep you in a cell 23 hours a day out of the 24. And, you know, you won't be able to go to recreation or go to any educational programs. It'll just be that one hour a day that you're out of your cell. And I really couldn't deal with being in the cell. And uh, so at 17 years old, I came up with this line of reasoning, which I acted on, which was, well, I'm already doing a life sentence. So. I'm going to take my chances and go to general population. And if somebody there kills me, well, I guess I don't have to worry about doing the rest of this life sentence now, do I? And so with that, you know, uh, I went to general population and I took my chances. You know, I, I can't say that I, I fault the logic, really. Um, yeah, I think if I was in your shoes, I probably would have thought something uh, kind of similar. Okay, so you have to now spend the, the next 16 years of your life in, in this situation, in this scenario. How do you get to a point where you're able to feel comfortable moving forward? And I think we may have having some technical difficulties uh, with Jeff. His, his signal is, uh, he looks like he's having a little bit of issue here. So we're going to... Uh, wait for him to come back. In the meantime, we'll give an update real quick on the on the Milbys. Uh, there's been a very nice donation as of recently uh, for that. And the Milbys right now are sitting, uh, let's see, I'm just going to put Jeff backstage for a moment until his, his, uh, he's able to come back in. But the Milbys are right now sitting at 5721 Looks like there was just a really nice donation recently uh, of $300 from an anonymous donor. And how awesome is that? So uh, I, I'm so excited that these guys, that this family, the Milby family, will have an opportunity to, to have some of that stress taken off of them. At having gone through uh, long hospital stays with my daughter, as we mentioned at the, at the outset here, um, this can be a very taxing mentally and emotionally. And so to have one last thing taken away so that you don't have to worry about it, how awesome is that? So if you can, you'll see the comments in the links uh, or in the comment section, the link rather in the comment section. I know what I'm trying to say. It's just not coming out. But anyway, if you look at the links in the comment section, you'll be able to go to the GoFundMe page there that you see right here for uh, the Milby family and help uh, 
you'll be able to help Robbie Milby and his wife uh, be able to take care of their family as they move forward. So that's a that's a very big thing. And that right now you can watch the rest of that show over on the Scene Snobs channel on YouTube or on Facebook. You can go to either one and you'll be able to watch and participate. There's all kinds. Of, I don't even know who's on right now, so I apologize because having been getting ready for this show and prepping for this and, and everything else, I wasn't able to uh, to see who was going to be on right now. But there's all kinds of shows. And then, like I also mentioned at the head, at the outset of the show, at 9 o'clock, uh, my other podcast focused on – this is focused on Ford. My other show, Funny Science Fiction, is also uh, going to be participating, and we will have – an hour there, and we've got a uh, really cool guest coming on, and we're going to talk about Star Wars a little bit, uh, which is a different topic set than what we do here, uh, but it's a really cool topic, and uh, we're going to talk about things that kind of got into the feathers and ruffled the feathers of Star Wars fans long before Disney ever got involved. So there's a really cool article that was uh, put out a little while back by Screen Rant. We're going to talk about that tonight. But uh, in the meantime, while we're still waiting for Jeff to come back, we'll um, we'll leave the this Milby's the, the Milby's up here for a second, and we're hoping uh, that we can watch. I'm hoping to be able to watch that number grow, and it just did. There we go, excellent. All right, there's another fifty dollars right there. So we're at five thousand seven hundred and seventy-one dollars. How cool is that happening in real time? Um, yeah, that's wow. All right. So, yeah. So if you guys can donate to that, you don't have to put your name in. You can be anonymous. But how cool is it that you have the opportunity to help another family? As as tough as the last two years have been mo- mentally and emotionally on everyone, you know, pay it forward. A dollar here, a dollar there, five dollars here. It all adds up. You know, five people add send in five bucks. Well, maybe that's the 20, you know, that's the 20, 25 bucks you were hoping to send in. You know, it, it all adds up, and it, it's all going to go to a good place. You see those three kids there; they need to be taken care of. So let's let's help uh, let's help uh, Robbie and and his wife um, Nicole be able to take care of their children. And I'm I'm excited to be able to be a, even a small part of this and be able to help out. So if you guys can help out, uh, that would be fantastic. So, um, but. Well, I haven't heard back from Jeff. I don't know that he's going to be able to make it back in tonight. We may have to call this uh, as a short a short chat for tonight. It's unfortunate. Jeff has a really cool story. I encourage you guys to go check out and type in your, your Google searches, Jeffrey Deskovich. Check out his story. Wrongly imprisoned for 16 years for a murder and a rape he did not commit. And I was hoping to, to be able to talk to Jeff a little bit more tonight about the mental and emotional impact that, that that had to put on a young man because he was only 17 when he went to jail. How that affected him, how that really must have weighed him down. But but through it all, he came out of it. He's firing on all cylinders. He's he's a lawyer now. He's, he's helping write laws to help protect people who are wrongly convicted. And there's so much good that Jeffrey's doing because of this negative experience. He found the silver lining. So... Uh, so yeah, so we have, you know, he's got a really cool story. And so I encourage you guys to be able to check that out and, uh, see what he's, see what he's doing there. So, um, but I guess, uh, what we'll do here tonight is, uh, we're going to go ahead and, and, uh, I think he's, I think he's back. 
let's try this. I'll, I'll try bringing him in. Uh, I don't think his camera's working, but uh, hopefully his mic is. So let's see what we can do here. Jeff, are you there? Yeah, I'm. I'm. Yes, I'm, yeah, I'm here. Okay. All right. So I was just kind of uh, giving a little bit of update to the Milbies. Anyway, so they gave me a chance to give a little bit more spiel on the Milbies. So all is well. Um, but so we had kind of left off talking about you being, you know, moving into general population. How long did it take you, Jeff, to get to a point where I don't want to say that you were necessarily ever comfortable in prison, but to a point where, you know, you kind of shared or, or shed some of the fears that were maybe hanging on your shoulders. Yes. Yeah. Hold on. I'm not sure what happened with the camera here, though. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so the rest, so the general population. So, about here we go. All right. I can see you. Yes, you can. Yeah, I've never had this happen to me before with the internet just suddenly goes out. So excuse me for this. Uh, hey, you know what? That's the joy of a live show, Jeff. If it doesn't, if something doesn't go wrong, you're not doing it right. So sure, sure, sure. sure. Okay, yeah. So, well, that was my fear in the general population. I mean, it was, it was. You know, it was very violent there in Elmira. Uh, you know, it was three or four stabbings or cuttings every day. No shortage of violence that did not involve. Oh, boy. You know, there was gang activity. And taking Kilmilvia, there was a general atmosphere of violence. And uh, there was a general atmosphere of violence that permeated the air. Uh, there was a system of maintaining order in the prison known as Keep Lock, which involved a variety of sanctions being imposed on the prisoners if they were found guilty of breaking a prison rule. Uh, those were those involved uh, being kept in the cell 23 hours a day. Uh, they, they would uh, they give you two showers one week and three the next, rather than being able to shower daily as the rest of the population. They would send you less food. Sometimes the food would be three or four days old. You would not be able to use the shower while you're while you're on that while you're on that status. Uh, then also their idea of complying with the court mandated one hour a day recreation consisted of putting the prisoners in a small cage area with maybe a pull-up bar in it. If you were lucky, you'd not be able to use the phone while you were in that status. You would not be able to buy things at the store. So there were several times in the course of my incarceration where I was assaulted one time, which I nearly lost my life. But in addition to dealing with that uh, physical aspect of it, uh, then I was also subjected to those sanctions. Uh, the food was terrible. Sometimes it was burned. Other times it was not fully cooked. Okay. All right. So, yeah. So there was a lot of, a lot of things that you had to learn how to navigate, how to, um, you know, accustom yourself to prison life, prison rule. How long do you th think or how long do you feel that it took you to become normalized to prison life to a point where at least that you weren't necessarily fear, fearing for yourself every day? Um, I don't or did that, that, did that feeling ever come about? That feel, that feel, well, I learned how to survive in prison, yeah, but I mean, the, the fear of people discovering what I was incarcerated for and that leading to violence afterwards, that, that, never, that never subsided. Uh, you know, it was always a concern. Okay. So you spent your 16 years, you, you were exonerated by the use of DNA, we're going to fast forward a little bit just because of time constraint here. Um, what was the impetus for you, you know, because of all the negative that you'd seen in the, in the law, was that the impetus for you to be able to say, you know, instead of being a policeman, like you wanted to, when you were younger, 
was that the impetus when you said, you know what, I want to be a, a lawyer now? Well, the impetus was that I had started a nonprofit organization and we were, you know, using some of the compensation. I mean, I was exonerated, as I mentioned, to the DNA Data Bank, and I began a five-year advocacy career after that, uh, just uh, doing public speaking, media interviews, meeting with elected officials. I was a columnist for five years. I uh, got a scholarship to finish the bachelor's degree. I got a master's degree. My thesis is on wrongful conviction cause and reform. And when I was compensated, I started the Jeffrey Deskovic Foundation for Justice. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, we've been able to get 11 people home. And at some That's point, cool. it, became, it became not enough for me to sit in the front row of the courtroom, but I wanted to sit at the defense table and represent some of the clients, hence going into, into law school and becoming an attorney in pursuit of the dream of exonerating others as a lawyer. Okay. So how long have you been practicing law now? And Yeah, I've been practicing law uh, for a little bit less than a year. Okay, uh, excellent. I've entered, three, I've entered three cases as co-counsel. And so I helped in that time. Uh, my highlights have been that I helped the client as co-counsel. I helped the client secure DNA testing that would not have been secured, but for my presence. I mean, the case was, was supposed to be argued in court the next day over whether she was going to be given testing or not. But as entering the case in co-counsel, I was able to reach out to the Westchester DA's office and they pushed the issue of DNA testing and it resulted in our client getting the testing without having to litigate over it. And the second thing was I wrote a response to the prosecution's reply uh, on, on a brief. So I had to answer the prosecution's counter arguments to our, to our client's claim and I, uh, 85% of what I wrote made the cut of what the lead attorneys submitted into the court. So I thought that was pretty cool. That is cool. I like that. All right. So, and let's talk a little bit about your advocacy work now. You, you, you mentioned that you, you had started a foundation, mm -hmm. uh, but let's, let's go through that. What, what, what are you doing in terms of advocacy? Right. Well, I, I, I am, I am co-counsel on three of the cases. I am pushing policy changes. Uh, in New York, Pennsylvania, and California. So specifically in Pennsylvania, we are working on exonerate compensation. So Pennsylvania is one of 14 states that does not currently have compensation, and we're working on passing oversight for prosecutors. In California, we're working on oversight for prosecutors, and we're trying to get rid of the death penalty because of the obvious risk of executing innocent people. In New York, we recently passed landmark legislation on that independent oversight for prosecutors. You have to go state by state. And right now we're working on other aspects of that. So we got to actually get the commissioners appointed and have the governor allocate a budget to this commission that he uh, that he signed into law that we got passed after an eight-year fight. So that's really what I'm doing in New York. But I also have a strong secondary issue in general criminal justice reform. So I've been a big part of pushing for parole reform. So a lot of people are denied, a lot of worthy prisoners who could demonstrate rehabilitation are denied parole anyway, just based on the charge that they're incarcerated for. And really that's something that will never change. So to deny parole based on that is almost a complete abandonment of the idea of uh, belief in a second chance a belief in uh, you know re rehabilitation. So that and uh, elder parole, the co companion bill. Uh, so basically I saw a lot of elderly people in prison that you know, really were model prisoners. I mean, they the crime they did was 10, 15, 20, 25 years ago. They were different. The different person sure. there had completed therapeutic programs, vocational trades, college education, and the person really wasn't able to deal with their advanced uh, medical needs. So 
Well, so uh, elder parole would guarantee anybody who was 55 plus had served 15 years already in prison that they would get a parole board hearing, not a guaranteed release. So uh, I've really been a, a big part of uh, pushing that as well uh, in collaboration with the lead organization uh, called RAP, Release Aging People in Prison. Okay. I, I you know, but, I would uh, look. Some of my advocacy work also, a lot of it, well, some of it, not a lot, some of it has had to do with uh, reaching, you know, making headway in law enforcement circles. So wrongful, you know, wrongful conviction prevention, criminal justice reform position as about accuracy and justice, not anti-cop, anti-prosecutor. So to that effect, I have co-taught the ethics class for police cadets in uh, New Jersey Police Academy for twice a year for the last seven and a half years. I served on the Peekskill Police Task Force Reform Group, which issued a report on improving policing. I was able to get consensus with the sitting Peekskill Police Chief and a county police officer and a retired detective. Uh, I have uh, I served on the transition team for Westchester County District Attorney uh, Mimi Roca, who I helped elect in Westchester, uh, drafting memos with other people on that committee as to how their conviction integrity unit uh, should run, what the best practices would be. I have co-taught uh, continued legal education, which all lawyers have to do. I've taught that to different groups of prosecutors and district attorney offices. And I've also spoken in front of five different uh, judicial gatherings where judges were in attendance and they asked me to address various wrongful conviction uh, topics. So my point, all of that's evidence that I have been and successful in, in pushing uh, that reform. You know, I, I don't support the defund the police movement that's really, you know, caught up a lot of segments of society. I mean, sure. if, I call the, if I call the cops, I don't want to be put on hold. I want there to actually be a police force that 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 I'm, that I'm reaching and I want an officer to show up at the scene, not not a social worker, not a psychologist. Sure. At the same time, I do want better training and I do I, I definitely want uh, oversight and accountability. And if they break the law, then we should punish them to the fullest extent of the law. If they break the yeah. law, they run for constitutional rights or state rights or otherwise commit crimes. The fact that you work in law enforcement, that's not a mitigating circumstance. It's an aggravating circumstance because you were entrusted with, you know, uh, authority, a badge and a gun and you abused it, you know? So, but, so that's really right. where, where I'm at. And I know that there's good and bad people in all professions and it's absolutely, not few, it's not a few bad apples. I categorically reject that. If it was a few bad apples, then we wouldn't be up to uh, more than uh, 2,800 exonerations in the National Register of Exonerations. We wouldn't see all the brutality that is often captured on, on film. We wouldn't see unjustifiable deadly police force. But at the same mm -hmm. time, you know, I don't I don't paint with a broad brush. And I, you know, I, I think that there's good and bad in the profession. And when sure. done right, uh, I have no problem with anybody, you know, working in those uh, in those fields. Okay. Well, let's... Uh... I'm going to jump ahead to a question that I typically ask everyone at the end of at the end of, e, of each show because we're nearing that. I want to make sure that we get these in. This is kind of a staple of focused on forward. Um, so, two questions. Looking back over the entirety of your experience, Jeff, what is the single greatest lesson that you have learned? My for, the formula for overcoming adversity. So, have a goal. Have a realistic plan. Be flexible. Remember that the goal is the goal. The plan's not the goal. So if an unexpected door opens, it's going to advance you towards that goal. You have to step through it to continue on with your journey, your march to that goal. Work okay. really hard. And no, no excuses, no reasons why you can't accomplish something, only reasons why something might be more difficult. 
and never give up. And once you come out on, and, and when you're ready, once you're ready, once you feel like you're about to give up, you got to say to yourself, you know, this might be the key moment. You might be on the verge of a breakthrough. And if you didn't give up, then you might have gotten through. So even though you can't go on anymore, keep going anyway, just to see what happens on the other side. And when you do come through on the other side, you have to reach back and help people that are similarly situated and do some work on the preventative side. And if you can do that, you can make your suffering count for something that'll be meaningful, healing, cathartic, and yeah. and, and you'll make the world uh, you'll make the world a little bit uh, better. I like that very much. Okay. And I know that that goes well beyond wrongful conviction. Mm -hmm. I, I could, you know, whether it's someone who's experienced homelessness, discrimination, racism, uh, domestic yeah. violence abuse, or sexual assault, or yeah. you name it, and you know, it, it could apply to that. So I think it can be a yeah applied to so many things in life. That's a that's I don't want to say it's a generalized thing, but in in a sense, it kind of is. It it's something that can be applied to almost everything that we've gone through. So that's good. Okay. Uh, the second question, very similar in nature, is looking back over the entirety of your experience, what's the single greatest piece of advice that you've been given? You can do anything you you can do anything you put your mind to. Okay. Who gave you that? My mother actually did. Okay. Well, she sounds like a very smart woman. Mm -hmm. All right. All right. Excellent. So, Jeff, if people are find, interested in finding out more about your story, because we lost a little bit of time here tonight. But if people are interested in finding out more about your story, where's a good place for them to go to find out more about Jeff, Jeffrey Deskovich? Well, first and foremost, I would say watch the documentary short about me called Conviction. It's available on Amazon Prime. Uh, beyond that, there is my website, www.deskovic.org, D-E-S-K-O-V-I-C.org. Uh, I am on social media, so I have a public figure page on Facebook. I'm on uh, LinkedIn and Instagram as well. And uh, maybe I'll just say, yeah, so I'll just, and I'll, and I'll, I just want to say to people that, you know, I do, I do appreciate uh, messages of encouragement. You know, they, the, the journey is often long and hard, even now. And uh, statements of encouragement are very, very uh, helpful. Excellent. And I, I, you know, one of the things I wanted to, to talk about tonight was the fact that that you were able to go through everything that you've gone through. And I like to call it finding the silver lining. You found the silver lining, in my opinion, by by finding something that you could do good out of the situation. And so for me, that's one of the things I always look for in somebody's story. And you, uh, at a young point in life, got got fed a really tough sandwich to take. Um, and But I, I, I want to applaud you for the way that you've come out of it, what you're doing now, and really the way I see you moving forward. Uh, like I said, I read a few articles about you, I, I, you know, in doing research for tonight, and uh, looked at some of the things that you're doing, some of the advocacy work that you're doing, uh, some of the laws that you've helped get enacted, and what you're doing, you know, around that. And I, I think that work is amazing, and I hope that you're able to continue it as long as you, you a you want to, and b that you can. So, but uh, I appreciate your sentiments. That that was a reinforcing statement uh, in 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 and of itself. And uh, thank you. I take that to heart, Tim. And I really appreciate you sharing your platform with me tonight. And 
you know, uh, doing your research and prep work. Uh, there's a lot more that goes into podcasts and really any kind of production, any kind of show, any kind of interview. It's not simply what you see in front of you. It's the prep work that, you know, uh, goes into it. So I do appreciate the time that you put in. Yeah, not a problem. It's my pleasure uh, to be able to have, you know, an opportunity to talk with you. I'm sorry that we, we lost a little bit of time tonight with some some tech issues. But like I said, if, if you don't have something go wrong in a live show, you're not doing it right. So, but, uh, you know, Jeff, uh, thank you for your story. And I will make sure that we put links for both your website and uh, for your, your documentary short on Amazon uh, into the the comments, not in the comment section, but in the information section, because this will be replayed on on uh, YouTube later for people to be able to watch. And that way they can see a little bit more about your story. And so, again, thank you, Jeff, for being a, a guest tonight on Focused on Forward. Really appreciate it. You got it anytime. All right, guys. Thank you so much. Thank you for being a part of Focused on Forward. Well, that concludes another episode of Focused on Forward. To be a guest of Focused on Forward, you can reach us through Twitter, at podcast fof through our facebook page named focused on forward or through email focused on forward at gmail.com we look forward to hearing each and every one of your stories that has yet to be told so until then be safe be kind and be loving to one another as you stay focused on forward